You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. About 40,000 women receive a diagnosis of endometrial cancer each year, making it not only the most common of the gynecologic cancers, but the fourth most common cancer found in women after breast, lung, and colon cancer. It is strongly characterized with the primary symptom being abnormal bleeding. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller, and with me today is Dr. Diljeet Singh, a gynecologic oncologist at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Welcome, Diljeet. Thank you. We're talking today about the latest information on endometrial cancer, its risk prevention treatment. The first point of contact for a woman with abnormal bleeding may well be her internist or family physician. What's the best way for that doctor to handle this situation? You know, I think that often one of the first instincts that we have as physicians is if someone has a symptom that we get a test in response to that. And often I think um, internists and family physicians feel like they need to obtain an ultrasound. That probably isn't the thing that needs to be done. Referral to a gynecologist so that an endometrial biopsy can be obtained um, is going to be ultimately the thing that someone needs to assess abnormal bleeding. So that's probably what I would consider the best way to handle that situation. What are the most common risk factors that the, the primary care doctors need to be aware of and to let their patients be aware of? The head and shoulders above everything else risk factor for endometrial cancer is being overweight. Um, obesity or being 30, greater than 30% over ideal body weight substantially, perhaps 30 times increases the risk of endometrial cancer but even being 10 to 15% over ideal body weight um, can increase a woman's risk. The other things that I think of as really important is someone who's had a lifetime of irregular periods, patients who have polycystic ovarian disease. But even if you think of the opposite obesity and you look at like athletes who don't necessarily um, ovulate regularly, um, we know that endometrial cancer is caused by unopposed estrogen essentially. And so women who have irregular cycles or are not regularly ovulating never get the progesterone of ovulation or after ovulation to oppose estrogen. So the, any unopposed estrogen is relatively uncommon these days, but somebody on unopposed estrogen would be the other person that I would think of that people should focus in on. And the other thing that I think that we sort of sweep under the rug a little is that we sort of tend to think of, you know, oh, some people have you know, irregular bleeding around their perimenopausal years, we tend not to make much of it. If it's persistent irregular bleeding, that person, does, you know, deserves an evaluation for endometrial cancer. And so that's the other people I would think of as a, in quote, risk factor. Are, are there currently any good screening tests available for endometrial cancer? The good news on endometrial cancer is that although there's 40,000 women who are diagnosed with endometrial cancer, the vast majority of them are cured. And they're cured because abnormal bleeding is such a frequent sign of the vast majority of um, endometrial cancer. So there's not really a screening test. We do pick up some endometrial cancer on pap smears, but we don't really screen for it. On the other hand, in, in a patient who's morbidly obese or who's had a lifetime of irregular bleeding, probably you could almost think of biopsies in that setting um, as being a kind of screening test. Obviously, though, you'd be doing it in response to abnormal bleeding. Let's talk about that patient with a lifetime of abnormal bleeding or a long period of time. That's a patient that is probably getting a lot of her care from her primary care physician or family physician. What steps can they take to address the 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 oligo? Uh, well, I don't want to use the word oligo. Well, patient that's not ovulating all the time uh, and therefore leading to her having abnormal bleeding. What steps can they be taking in the patient's 
life in their 20s to decrease the risk of that patient getting endometrial cancer in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So there's a number of things you can undo. I mean, if the reason that person's not ovulating regularly is because they are um, overweight and they have um, excess circulating estrogen, um, then obviously addressing their weight is the biggest um, thing a family physician or internist can do for that person. And obviously addresses their other health issues too, their risk of diabetes, cardiac disease, stroke, as well as breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So maintaining health, you know, getting someone as close as you can to um, ideal body weight. In somebody who has irregular periods or irregular ovulation as a result of polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, referral and treatment for that as appropriate. But the other thing is, is there's definitely value to oral contraceptives. The protective effect of um, ever having used oral contraceptives, you know, thinking um, is probably roughly 3 to 4% per year of use. Um, for five years of use, you decrease the risk of endometrial cancer by almost 30%, and it may be more than that. And that, again, we think of oral contraceptives as a progesterone-dominant pill, and so we're sort of opposing that estrogen so those are the things that I would think of, weight management, exercise, addressing their baseline issues and oral contraceptives. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to, to emphasize the importance of oral contraceptives and, and the protective effect it has and, and as it being a, a medication that's not just to stop pregnancy. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Joel Heller, your host, and with me today is Dr. Diljeet Singh, a gynecologic oncologist and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Northwestern University. So as we've been talking about estrogen, estrogen throughout a woman's life, from monarch to past the menopause, and one of the things that has... Uh, recently come up from the Women's Health Initiative is the risks and benefits of estrogen replacement therapy and what we thought about them today being very different from what we thought about it 10 years ago. So can we talk a little bit about the hormones and its relationship around the menopause and beyond the menopause? Sure. <laughs> well, what can I tell you? <laughs> well, tell me what your uh, the, the most recent findings from the Women's Health Initiative in terms of uh, what, if any, their actual beneficial effects there are and what, if any, of the risks there are. I love the Women's Health Initiative because I think that it was valuable research that had to be done and that that kind of undertaking, large-scale undertaking, is difficult, expensive, and we've gotten a lot of data from that. On the other hand, there's always limitations of what we call cohort, prospective cohort studies like that. And one is who actually joined those kinds of studies, how does their health behavior differ from other people who aren't willing to be in studies, um, how do people report things, and like, does being in a study change you? So that's just sort of my little backdrop to the Women's Health Initiative. The the findings that I think changed people's minds about hormones were a increase in the risk, a small increase in the risk of breast cancer that was seen with greater than five use of combination estrogen-progesterone hormone replacement therapy. It's a relatively small increase. It was an extra eight cases per 10,000 women. Now, I'm an oncologist. I hate cancer, so... You know, eight too many. You know, that's eight too many. On the other hand, we perhaps didn't do the greatest job of sort of um, balancing those eight. For example, there were actually almost eight less colon cancers in the same group. And so I think, 
you know, there, there's no absolutes that, you know, on a radio show I wouldn't say, hey, everybody run out and get some estrogen. It's good for you. And I wouldn't say, oh, estrogen causes cancer and it's evil. I think every single woman is going to have to sit with her health care provider and kind of look at her own risks of breast cancer, ovary cancer, her own risks of bone disease, cardiac disease, um, and her own symptoms of menopause and how it's affecting the quality of her life when she makes decisions about whether or not it makes sense to take hormones after a natural menopause at all, um, and whether or not it makes sense to do it for a short period of time, a longer period of time, etc. I think um, it's hard to make a blanket recommendation, and really we shouldn't make blanket recommendations. So on a patient-to-patient basis, despite some of the hysteria that's been in the news media, that's still the best way to practice here. Absolutely. Uh, as you said before, the uh, one of the if there can be such a thing as good news about a cancer, it's the fact that endometrial cancer is extremely curable. What, what's the current state of uh, therapeutic options? Where do we where are we at today in the year two thousand and seven? So, the it's still kind of a relatively I hate to say it barbaric um, <laughs> approach. I mean the re, the way we cure most endometrial cancers is with surgery, and that's uh, you know sterility inducing surgery. That is, we do hysterectomies, removals of tubes and ovaries, and we remove lymph nodes to assess for um, the stage of disease and make bases, uh, make judgments about whether or not we need additional treatment, such as radiation um, or for more advanced cancers, a combination of radiation and chemotherapy based on that staging information. Um, there is some work in, the, um, in women who are still in their childbearing years who want to try to maintain fertility, um, and there are some hormonal options for very, very early cancers. It's not the standard of care, and obviously that would um, uh, that kind of approach would be undertaken after sort of discussing all the options and risks. But fortunately for some women, um, we are able to still maintain fertility and treat them with hormones, and they can go on to have children um, even after treatment for endometrial cancer. But for the vast majority of women, they're in their peri- or postmenopausal years, and it involves surgery, possibly some radiation, and then less commonly, but if needed, a combination of radiation and chemotherapy. And that's kind of been the way things have been for for, uh, the longest time. Is there any changes out there in the future? Do you see uh, possibly changing any of that? You know, for me, where I think we're going to get the best um, is at preventing. Um, As we start to understand the things that cause endometrial cancer and breast ovary cancers, how that hormonal interplay works. I think it's more about preventing um, anyone from ever getting endometrial cancer, um, number one. Two, we're starting to learn, as we are in many cancers, that there are inherited predispositions to certain cancers. For endometrial cancer, there's something called hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. That's a syndrome of colon cancer, endometrial cancer, ovary cancer, sometimes pancreatic cancer that comes in families. And in families who have that predisposition, endometrial cancer is actually the number one cancer among women. And there may be up to a 80% risk of getting endometrial cancer. Probably it's closer to 70, um, but it may be higher than that. And about a 12% risk of getting ovarian cancer um, with that syndrome. Now, obviously, to make judgments about whether or not someone has that high a risk or that considerable a risk involves the expertise of a genetic counselor someone sort of sitting down and looking at a family tree and making assessments about that. There are some genetic tests for that, for HMPCC, but we haven't yet figured out all the gene changes that lead to that syndrome. 
Um, and so sometimes we do it based on family tree alone, something we call Amsterdam criteria. Right. So there's not a specific gene locus. Uh, it, it's more multifocal. Um, right. There are some that we know of. Um, uh, about 50% of them have been identified, um, but not all of them. We've clearly not identified all of them. So a good take-home from this for, for our primary care physician listeners is that they can have a great impact on the future of their patients with endometrial cancer, correct? Absolutely. Basic, you know, you know, maintaining ideal body weight, encouraging um, oral contraceptive use if it's otherwise appropriate for the patient, um, and then paying attention to symptoms such as abnormal bleeding. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Diljeet Singh, for joining us today as we discuss the risk prevention and treatment of endometrial cancer. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.